You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Daniel Simons, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Illinois and also the co-author of a couple books. Most recently, a book called Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It. And also this older book, also co-authored with Chris Chabri, called The Invisible Gorilla. Welcome, Dan. Oh, thanks for having me on. So look, when I got this latest book, Nobody's Fool, of course, this is a topic that is of deep interest to me, which is kind of how not to be persuaded, right? So we at business schools, we teach a lot of courses on persuasion, right? Like how to get other people agree with you. How do you get other people to kind of do what you want them to do? And I don't know, I consider my role in business school as the one that teaches the students how not to be persuaded, how not to get compelled to doing stuff that you shouldn't be doing. And so in my accounting class, I spent a lot of time on things like shenanigans, right? Accounting fraud. And my data and decisions class spent a lot of time talking about how people can manipulate data and so forth. And so when I saw that the title of this book was why we get taken in and what we can do about it, it reminded me that when I talked to Bob Cialdini, his book Influence was originally motivated by this desire to coach people on how not to be persuaded. And yet the book wound up becoming like the Bible of how to persuade. And I think you really stuck to the original point, which is how do you become a better consumer of information, consumer of analyses, and consumer, if we can call it that, of persuasive efforts on the part of others. So if your first book is kind of a guidebook to attention, this is kind of like a guidebook to persuasion, although it clearly builds on the earlier book. Yeah, I, mean, I think of the first book as more an exploration of how our intuitions about how our own minds work often can be misleading and can be wrong based on our experiences. And this book is more about how our patterns of thought and sort of the information that we find really appealing and attractive can lead us down the wrong path. I hope it doesn't become, you know, how-to manual for scammers. I don't think it will because that's not really what we're aiming for. But you know, scammers already kind of understand how our minds work. They take advantage of it, either implicitly or explicitly, they take advantage of what we find really appealing, what we want to believe. And the problem for most of us is that we don't typically think about how we can be deceived. So in that sense, I, I think it's probably less likely to become a tool for scammers than for users and consumers. Yeah, well, scammers or magicians also. Now, look, I was wondering, maybe we could start with the original, the first book, The Invisible Gorilla, because this is really built on, I think, perhaps one of the most famous experiments of our time, one which I have used in my class many, many times. I, I don't know whether we should ruin the experiment by talking about it. I'm hoping that most people... At this point, I think, uh, yeah, at this point, it's pretty safe. I agree. At this point, most people have experience. But look, I remember the very first time when I encountered this experiment on the receiving end and subsequently have used it and its successor experiment, the monkey business illusion. I use it every year in class and almost every year it works. And as an economist, I've always been puzzled by whether or not the whole point of the experiment is about the attentional budget and how there are these inevitable trade-offs versus is there a fixed budget or is there a variable budget? Like, can we invest in acquiring more attention? And in the book, in all of your research, you've talked about how there's no individual differences and across the board, you see this thing, but then you highlight this one little thing where if you're a professional basketball player, then you can kind of do both, right? The focused and the peripheral attention. So do people have a fixed attentional budget or can we expand our budget? So I think that kind of leads to a bigger question, which is, is there any way to kind of both pay attention to things and notice the unexpected stuff, right? So if we have a limited pool of attention resources or juice, then the idea would be that really there's going to be limits to how much we can take in at any given time. Could we improve that? Maybe at the margins. Right. So you're not going to suddenly massively double or triple your attention capacity, despite what you might find on some websites. You're not going to suddenly be able to take in everything by doing some training. Right. 
Could you maybe increase your ability to perform a focused attention task, like counting passes? Absolutely, right? You can practice that. If you practice gaming, for example, you're going to get better at that. If you practice doing that sort of task over and over again, you'll get more and more efficient at it. Will that make you better at noticing unexpected things? I don't think so. I mean, I think that's what we're finding with all of the individual differences work is that we can take people who can count passes or count bounces or in a computerized version of this twice as fast as other people. And I'm a slow counter. Other people are really fast counters. They can do this task. It's really easy for them. And they're no more likely to notice the unexpected thing. So it's not just about sort of how much juice you have. It's also about how likely we are to pay attention to and notice things that we weren't looking for in the first place. Right. Now, look, I tell all my students and my friends and colleagues that at the end of every accounting period, they should go back and look at kind of how they spent their money, right? Go look at their personal finance software and say, okay, where'd the money go? And then I tell them also, you should do this with your attention, right? Go back and look and see where did your attention go? And I think one of the good things about your research is that it really forces you to kind of bring that to the surface and say like, okay, where do I want to be? on this attentional frontier. But in the experimental setting, you clearly have these two options. But in the wild, there are all sorts of other things that might be kind of drawing attentional resources without even being aware of it, right? Like, so I've seen these studies where, you know, if you have your phone just sitting on the table here, that's kind of like draining your battery so that you're going to perform worse on both the counting task and the gorilla noticing. Is a way to improve your attentional resources, maybe kind of identifying these kinds of taxes or drains and then eliminating them? Sure. And that's a real challenge because we don't often realize when something is drawing on our resources, right? So I think one of the reasons people have bad intuitions about this is that their experiences don't tell them when they've missed things, right? So if I were to show you the original sort of gorilla video and you've counted the passes and you didn't see the gorilla and I never asked you about the gorilla, you'd go on through life believing that, of course, you'd always notice something like that, right? If you drive and talk on the phone and you get home consistently, you'll go through life thinking you're just fine driving and talking on the phone without realizing how much you're weaving across the lanes or distracted, right? Because we're unaware of what we haven't seen, right? So I think one of the real challenges in that sort of a case, right, and having a phone there that is kind of diverting some of your attention, you have to realize it in order to know that you have to do something about it. And our intuitions about what takes away our resources and what doesn't is not great because we don't really understand the workings of our own minds. There's a really nice study of this driving and talking on the phone is one of the examples that I use a lot. And one of the things that's interesting about it is that, yeah, talking on a phone impairs your driving, but driving impairs your talking on a phone too. It impairs your conversations. So we're kind of tapping into the same sort of resources without realizing we're doing it. Now, Max Bazerman and others talk about the power of being a noticer, right? And you can tell stories about how there's a great example in the book about pilots who failed to notice the runway incursions and so forth, which can lead to accidents. But if we want them to start paying attention to that, then presumably they have to pay attention to something else to a lesser extent. So how should we think about what the ideal allocation is? Obviously, it's going to be environmentally contingent. But if we're, for instance, training doctors, radiologists and so forth, I mean, Yes, the radiologist is going to miss that catheter, right, that you described in the book. Do we want them to? I mean, you talk about Theranos and all these other things. Part of the reason why these things get missed is because presumably every single VC that looked at Theranos was asking the same set of questions, right? So is this an argument in favor of having people with diverse attentional states kind of working together? Like, should Bazerman be saying, let's have a noticer there along with a focuser and then have them work together? I think that's often going to be the best strategy, right? So radiologists are often looking through at a set of radiographs and they're looking for specific things, right? Because they know what the potential problem is that they're looking for, which means that they're not as likely to spot something that's not that, right? So if they're looking for a nodule in a lung, they might not notice a fracture, right? Because it's just not what they're searching for. So there, there are strategies you can adopt for that. You have people who are going in without and a set for what they're looking for. Right? So if you just watch the gorilla video and don't bother paying attention to the players, you'll see the gorilla, right? because you're not devoting attention to the thing you're looking for. 
And this is kind of a general problem with attention, right? We tend to focus on one thing really well, and we need to do that. We need to be able to filter out those distractions. So you want people looking for the thing they're supposed to find, because most of the time, that's what you want them doing, right? You want them devoting their resources to the diagnosis that's most likely. It's just that every now and then, you're going to miss something that's sometimes rare and sometimes not what you're looking for, right? Magicians capitalize on this all the time, right? They tell their audiences indirectly or directly what they should be paying attention to, and that's not what they should be paying attention to if you want to figure out how they're doing it. Right. In the book, you didn't mention that image that has the gorilla in it. That must have come after the book, right? There are a lot of allusions to that study in other studies. There are actually a whole series of studies of radiologists looking at x-rays or radiographs in which they've inserted gorillas. It's kind of the majority of inattentional blindness failures of awareness studies like that in radiology have gorillas in the images. So, which is a little strange because that's not something that ever happens. So it is totally unexpected, but it's also kind of totally irrelevant. Well, your emphasis is on the individual for the most part and the individual's attention, but I couldn't help but note the parallels between your work and what happens in the organizational design literature, right? So presumably the person in your experiment who is counting the basketballs is doing so because you've set that out as the goal. Like here, here's what your job is. Here's what you're going to do. And so when organizations tell their employees, like, here's your job, here's what you're supposed to do, here are the metrics by which you're going to be evaluated, that necessarily is going to lead them to focus on those things, right? So a lot of times we talk about organizations having to have kind of a single unity of purpose, and that seems to maybe be a problem. Should we make sure that we have non-overlapping functions within the organization? Yeah, or even have people whose primary role is to question the assumptions, right? So having the equivalent of a red team, right? A team that is not trying to further your goals. They're trying to point out weaknesses in your business plan or weaknesses in your product design. That sort of tactic, as long as you actually adhere to it and you just don't want to hear, oh, everything's great, right? Can be really helpful because if you have people who aren't trying to further the agenda and the task that you've given them, but are instead trying to look for problems, they're more likely to spot the problems. That's what their task is. Yeah, like in Silicon Valley Bank, right? They had no chief risk officer for like, I mean, as someone who teaches banking, I'm just so blown away by how you could possibly not have anybody within the organization sort of raising their hand and saying, hey, have we taken a look at our duration gap in the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge problem in most fields, right? It's true in the sciences as well. So in the sciences, we have peer review, right? So you're supposed to have experts who are thinking critically about your work. But a lot of shoddy work gets out there for various reasons. You've got small numbers of people looking at it. And there aren't really science police. I mean, there are very few of them who are almost all doing it voluntarily, going in and trying to track down where the problems are and get things corrected. Right? So ideally, we'd have risk officers or people who are looking for those problems all the time in disciplines where it matters. Right? In some cases, it doesn't matter that much. But in business, it has costs. And in science, it has long-term consequences. Well, you spent a lot of time in the new book talking about the kind of replication crisis, right? And Dietrich Stoppel is my favorite example of this, right? What do you have, like 55 set and then... F 58, yeah. yeah, refracted papers. So I, I talk about him in, in my class. I also talk about Brian Wasink, and I also talk about Mark Hauser, right? And these are examples of where the expert community was sort of taken in. Now, is that because of, I mean, there's... System-wide, it's a lack of checks and balances, right? And a lack of this red teaming. But at each individual researcher level, I think this would fall into the commitment heuristic, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it actually, multiples of these long-term scientific frauds kind of tap into multiple sort of principles for why we fall for them. And what's interesting about many of these cases is they're typically caught eventually by a whistleblower, not by looking at the scientific articles, because... In cases like Stoppel, right? His work was clever, right? It was next step advances over previous studies, but it fit completely into the sort of zeitgeist of the field. It was kind of what people expected to see. It was just a little more impressive, right? We should have been worried because his results were consistently good every single time, right? I, I kind of heard people say, I don't know what's in the water in the Netherlands, right? People kept getting these amazing priming results that maybe other people weren't getting. But their, the incentive structure was to publish a lot of papers and to kind of get those perfect results, when what we really should be expecting is noisy results, right? It, it's pretty rare to get the same thing every time. And 
it doesn't really happen in psychology research, right? With the exception of things that are really well established and that are really pretty primitive to how we process the world. So yeah, if I do a study of how well you can perceive a faint symbol against a gray background, and I do that by changing systematically how much it stands out, we're going to get the same results every time, right? It's pretty consistent. But if you're giving people a little priming task where they're underscrambling sentences and that changes their behaviors in the world, like, yeah, that's not going to happen. If it's true, if it happens at all, it's not going to happen the same way every single time. Right. Now, for each of the different psychological, don't use the term bias, right? But I think for each of these psychological tendencies that is likely to lead you to error, you provide kind of a fix, right? And one of them is to view more skeptically the things that you agree with right, than the ones that you disagree with or the ones that confirm or conform to your presuppositions. And I had an earlier podcast where I talked about this, right? We have a tendency to be pretty good at picking holes in things that we don't like the conclusion of. And I thought a corollary to this was we should also view more skeptically claims made by people we like, right? Because we have a tendency to give them a pass. And it's totally natural, right? That things that are familiar to us, things that match our worldview, we're not going to be as critical about them because they're what we're expecting to see. And that's how errors creep in in a lot of really important cases, right? The famous Excel spreadsheet error from Reinhardt and Rogoff was exactly that sort of thing. It fit what they were trying to argue, so they didn't investigate it more thoroughly. But had the result come out the opposite way, they probably would have double-checked their data. Right? And we all do this, right? You have a prediction for how something's going to come out. If it comes out exactly the opposite of what you expect, you'll check and make sure you didn't get your coding reversed. Right? But if it comes out exactly like you expected it, you're probably less likely to. And I, I think for a lot of these sorts of things, building in the sort of the mechanisms to automatically check, rather than having to think about it every single time, can help a lot. So having that sort of red team equivalent, like one thing you can do is have two people analyze the same data with different hypotheses going in. Do they end up with the same results? Or blinding yourself to what your conditions are so that when you analyze the data, you don't know what the outcome is until after you then reapply the labels and say, oh, okay, it came out in the direction I expected. Right? There, there are ways of sort of doing this in the sciences that can kind of take care of that problem by eliminating your ability to influence and check more thoroughly. You check your analyses before you get the data rather than after the data. How come we don't see more co-authors who come from different positions, right? This would seem to make a lot of sense. Bring in people that start with different priors, different beliefs, and have them work together on experiments so that they can resolve them. Like the idea of an adversarial collaboration where you get people who have disagreement and they come in and try and resolve them by doing the study. It's a wonderful idea in principle that becomes really hard in practice, right? Just because if you're coming at something from different viewpoints, presumably you're steeped in this literature, there are debates in that literature, people disagree. And ideally you want to kind of come to the right conclusion, but with any one data set, it's unlikely to completely resolve something. I think there is a solution to this, which is what we now call registered reports. It's kind of how most people think science actually happens, which is you come up with a hypothesis, you specify what you're going to do, then you get your data and you see which hypothesis was supported. In practice, it, it doesn't tend to work that way. So registered reports are a way that you can do this sort of adversarial collaboration where you specify in advance what different patterns of results, how you would interpret them, right? And you can even write all of the analysis code so that you can specify, here's the conclusion it will automatically draw depending on how the data come out. And that has the advantage that it eliminates the ability to kind of, after the fact, reinterpret what you would have predicted, right? Which is how easily we can make sense of these things. I remember a, a famous case in my field, I won't name names, but it was somebody who was doing a postdoctoral fellowship with the person they disagreed with. And they designed a study to resolve their disagreement. And they ran the study, and they each interpreted it as consistent with their views. Right. So what do you do? Right. Yeah. Well, you didn't mention p-hacking, but that's another big tool that people use. So I teach a course on behavioral finance, and one of the sections is on overconfidence. And we tend to think that this is common among amateurs. But the experts perhaps are even more susceptible to overconfidence than the amateurs. And, you know, I love how you talk about Dan Kahneman. I mean, Dan Kahneman, to his credit, had to backtrack from his earlier assertions in his book about priming studies. Do you think are experts any better than amateurs when it comes to, say, overconfidence or willingness or credibility? 
I think when they're in their own lane, absolutely, right? Because expertise can be really protective. You're, you're going to recognize cases where, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't hold together. It's inconsistent with other things that you know about. The real danger comes in thinking you're an expert in things that you're not, right? And I think what happened with the, the priming research that Danny Kahneman sort of touted in Thinking Fast and Slow, and then much of that field sort of crashed and burned when others tried to reproduce and replicate their findings. He later realized, okay, these were all small studies, but there were so many of them, and I kind of wanted to believe them because I had this idea about sort of automatic processing that fit it, right? So he wanted to believe it. He wasn't steeped in that literature or the methods in that literature. And I think he assumed that the way that people in his subfield of psychology did things, right, cognitive psychology, where there, there's much more of a focus on sort of getting the tasks right, right? Everybody kind of wants to be able to reproduce the results, even if it doesn't necessarily speak to anything in the world, which is the bigger issue for, for cognitive psychologists. Is we do lots of studies that hold up just fine. It's just not clear that they have any relevance to anything. Social psychology had a different sort of way of going about things, and I don't think he realized that there was sometimes a disconnect there between the practices and incentives and methods in one subfield versus another, and assumed that, well, of course people would make their data available, and of course they'd go and replicate their work before publishing it. And that wasn't the standard in subparts of that field. Not, not the whole field, but in subparts of that field. Yeah, no, okay. The overall takeaway of the book, Nobody's Fool, I think is trust less, verify more, right? Accept less, check more. Yeah, same, same idea. But just like with attention, I mean, you have a kind of a fixed budget, right? You have to go through life making assumptions. I remember my mom used to say, don't assume, mix an ass out of you and me. And I was like, well, if I don't assume anything, like I can't get out of bed in the morning, right? So how do we know whether we're kind of trusting to the optimal amount? And one of the reasons why, you know, I mean, in the law, like article two is like, you just got to trust somebody and sort it out later. If you go through life with your head on a swivel and you're constantly aware of all the things, people, everyone's robbing you, then you can't get anywhere. So how do you know what the optimal allocation of trust resources is? That's the real challenge. I mean, we have to trust and we kind of have to accept what other people are telling us is true much of the time, right? It, otherwise, you really couldn't function. If you were a perpetual cynic and skeptic about everything, you couldn't get anywhere, right? You'd be checking the ingredients on every box of food you buy to make sure it truly is what it says it. I mean, you couldn't function in society and be a perpetual skeptic. And there's going to be a spectrum of people who are going to be much more trusting and much less critical and skeptical and others who are much more skeptical. But you have to find this happy medium. And I think what we're trying to do in this book is identify the cases where we don't realize we're not being critical enough, right? And to what are those red flags? So the way I like to think about this is kind of the metaphor I like is a matador, right? The matador has this red cape and they wave it around and the bull just charges straight forward, not even realizing that there's a blade hidden, right? And for us, there are lots of those red capes out there and we don't realize they're red capes, right? So when somebody's presenting us with a great opportunity to buy something that we've always wanted to buy, well, that's a perfect case to be extra careful right? because it's what we want. It's what aligns with our incentives. It's kind of presenting it the way we want to expect it. And that's when we're likely to get scammed. Right? Or we really like the idea of really consistent results, really consistent outcomes. Madoff's Ponzi scheme was really appealing because it produced 8 to 12% every year for year after year with no down years. Right? That consistency is really appealing because... We often take consistency as a sign of deep understanding and credibility when we really should be looking for noise and should take it as a red flag. So we need to kind of know when should we just charge ahead without checking or when should we say, okay, I don't like that red flag. Or I don't like that red cape. I should be a little more critical of it. So the, the purpose of our book is to kind of identify what are those things that we tend to find really appealing? What stuff do we find appealing? What patterns of thought lead us to kind of jump right in without checking and when should we balance that? So as you were saying, we can't check everything. There's no way. And you probably don't want to check the price of every item on your receipt against what was marked in the store. If you can afford a few dollars here and there that get lost because the register miscalculated, it's not worth your time, right? If you're buying a million dollar piece of artwork, yeah, it's worth your time. And it's worth your time to think about what somebody who is trying to scam you, what links they would go to in order to fool you. And like a magician setting up a trick and taking years to prepare it, somebody who's trying to con somebody out of a million dollars, 
is absolutely going to spend years developing that technique. So those are times when, yeah, you should really be paying much more attention. And being able to spot them is the key. Now, as an economist, I always think in terms of pooling and sorting, separating equilibria. And so, I mean, to be a con artist, this is kind of like a frequency-dependent strategy, right? So if there's too many con artists, then everybody's alert to them. But if there's a sufficiently small number of them, then people will just kind of let their guards down, right? And so is it surprising to you that there aren't more scams and cons? I mean, I think given how vulnerable and how trusting we all are, I'm always amazed that there aren't more cons and scams. There are a lot. Part of it is that there are a lot of people right, to potentially scam. And I think we're thinking about the big cons, right? The ones that take people for years or the long-running Ponzi schemes. Those are probably relatively rare just because they take a tremendous amount of time, effort to set up in the same way that you know, a really careful magician is going to set up that trick so that it just doesn't fail often. It, it takes a lot of expertise to do that. There aren't that many people who could pull off Theranos, right? But there are lots of people who can pull off simple scams and do, right? And I think what we kind of confuse for the difference between being deceived at a sort of a day-to-day -day level versus being deceived on a grand scale, those grand scale ones are pretty rare. But there might be a lot of them out there that we don't know about because when people have been scammed, they often don't want to talk about it. It's embarrassing. And we all get scams regularly. I mean, all of us get phishing emails all the time, right? And the scams are getting, some of them are getting more sophisticated. But yeah, the fact that we have all these scams, I'm not sure there's really, we're anywhere close to an equilibrium right now. And one way to think about this is there are so many media reports of scams, right? News stories, great podcasts, movies about scams. The grand con movies have been around forever, right? And we don't seem to learn from them. <laughs> so we still fall prey to the same things and they all capitalize on the same tricks. They're really not that new, you know, kind of the thing. I think it's like you say, when you're looking for a gorilla, you miss other things. And so I'm sure that there won't be very many VCs who get sucked into a blood testing scam, but you know, they'll be sucked into some other scam in a different domain, right? Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of fudging at the boundaries that it's not really a scam or wholesale faking, but there's a lot of fudging at the boundaries of what some product can do and what it can't do. I mean, this is like a tech industry staple, the demo that works only in a really constrained set of circumstances that's then sold as the future of X, right? It's not that hard to put together a demo that works. It's hard to put together a demo that is representative of everything that you would want something to do. Right? And yeah, so is that a con? No, not really. Is it deceptive? Yeah, it can be if it's sold as something bigger than what it actually is. And, but it's really appealing and VCs don't want to miss out on the next big thing, right? So I'm sure there will be the equivalent, just not in blood testing. Yeah, no, look, if the book was only about multi-million dollar counterfeit art scams and Bernie Madoff and Theranos, then it probably would not have as much appeal as I think this book will have because you talk about kind of the everyday vulnerabilities that we have, how susceptible we are to things like survivorship bias and shrouded attributes, right? So in marketing, I mean, I think of this as a version of price discrimination. The people who are paying attention, they don't pay. And the people who are kind of not paying attention, they pay. An example I use in classes, the resort fee at a hotel in Las Vegas, right? No one tells you about it. And then you leave and you see it on your bill and People pay attention and see it and they protest. Oh, they just remove it. Send the other people, they just wind up paying it. It's an inattention tax. It's really what it is. And it's a familiarity with that particular way of playing the game, right? The resorts figure, well, we can get away with it unless people stop us. So we're going to and nobody's stopping them. Yeah. So I think Shrouded Attributes is an interesting case, right? Because sometimes just looking a little further will show you what the actual costs of something are. But Sometimes nobody will tell you and nobody really knows. It's just kind of built in. So that, that's kind of a built-in form of daily deception that, you know, we rarely encounter. We don't have access to the same information that the person selling something to us does. Well, another tool that I found super useful is this idea of the possibility grid. And it maps really nicely in with, say, confusion matrix in data science, right? And I found it puzzling, and I've been teaching statistics for 30 years. And before I started studying data science, I didn't know about the confusion matrix. We'd talk about type one, type two errors. But unless you arrange the data in that two by two grid, it's hard to really make sense of the legitimacy of the classifier of the test, right? 
Yeah, I teach statistics as well. And the whole type one, type two is just not something that's easy to grasp. But thinking about rates is something that we don't naturally do, but it's such an easy thing to do if you just take a little bit of time to lay it out that way, right? And realize, oh, okay, I don't know how often this actually helps, right? So how many business books have we seen where it's like, hey, here's this amazing CEO, look at all the great things they did. Here's their history and that's why they succeeded. It's like, okay, well, how many people did exactly the same thing and failed, right? How many people didn't do those things that the CEO did and succeeded, right? You need to know whether what they did had any difference in the rate of success, not just succeed and that's what they did, right? That doesn't tell you anything. Right. What's the baseline? What's the benchmark? Wouldn't it be great if we could, I would love it if I could reconstruct something like that for when I think somebody's scamming me and they're not. <laughs> when I don't think they're scamming me and they are. I mean, the problem is getting access to that data. Like, wouldn't we need to have that data to know whether or not we're sufficiently vigilant? Yeah, well, we often need that data in, in cases when we don't have it, right? So, I mean, one of the examples we use in the book is a consulting firm that's pitching you for their business. And what are they going to tell you about? Like, every success story that they had, right? They're not going to tell you about their failures, typically, right? And in principle, that data aren't going to be available to you unless you ask for it, right? So one of the key things, and it seems like it's kind of trite, but just asking additional questions, asking, what aren't you telling me, right? What... Are, can you show me some more companies, right? That, you know, can you show me companies that had a different timeline? Have you had companies that didn't show improvements? What was different about them? And just pushing a little bit. And it's uncomfortable and it's not what we want to do, but it, there are times when you know you need to seek that information in order to make a rational decision, make sure you're not being scammed. Yeah, I did a brief workshop for a rehab facility and these folks charge an enormous amount of money, right? Like $30,000 a month or whatever for these rehab and I just asked them like, okay, so what happens to all the people when they leave? And then they said, well, after we send them on their way, like we don't track them. Privacy, right? And I was like, well, what do you mean privacy? Like people are going to spend $30,000 and they don't know whether or not this thing works or not. I mean, I found that astonishing. And I remember one time I was pitching a startup recently. And when I went to the VC's office, they had this anti-portfolio, right? on their wall. There are a couple of good ones that do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that's not just valuable to the people who are going in looking for money, but I think it's super valuable for the people who work there, right? Absolutely. Because they can think about, hey, we're not going to successfully invest in every company that succeeds and we're going to make mistakes and keeping track of those. It, doing that systematically is really a valuable thing for an organization, right? If they know, hey, here's what our actual hit rate is. Here's what we've missed, right? Here are the cases where we thought we had a winner and it crashed and burned and we lost everything, right? And if you analyze those, maybe you end up making better choices down the line. If you don't and you just remember the ones that were great, then you're likely going to make more mistakes because you're going to build up this intuition about what's working without necessarily having the evidence that you need for it, right? You're only looking at your successes. Now, why do you think people don't do more verification? You didn't mention, I think it was John Paulson, who is a famous investor who invested in a number of these Chinese companies that were essentially Potemkin villages, right? And the cost of verifying is really pennies on the dollar, right? I mean, you send somebody over to China, look around. So why do you suppose folks don't ask more questions? Is it because they think that they're going to make other people uncomfortable? Well, it is uncomfortable, right? To push somebody and say, are you telling me everything that's it's essentially saying, you're not giving me all the information you're withholding, right? And that can make people defensive. So finding the right way to do that even if it's just, what more can you tell me? And just keeping continually doing that until they start telling you things that they wouldn't have thought to tell you. It's kind of a journalistic skill. So it's a skill to learn how to do that. But yeah, I think it's uncomfortable, right? If you've got a ton of money that you're investing, of course, keeping in mind that whoever you're trying to invest in has an interest in you giving them your money, right? So they're going to present themselves in the best possible light. And if you can get them to say, hey, if you are completely straight with me, and give me all of the information, that's going to make me more trusting of you. There should be noise, right? Again, it's noise is often something that's good. If everything somebody tells you is exactly what you would hope it is, you should be worried right? because that's like a massive lottery win, right? It just doesn't happen much. So. Now, I, I did a podcast recently on parasites and we said, let's look at the world through the parasites perspective, right? You know, who's a prime target, right? And it turns out you know, humans are pretty good relative to other creatures. You talk a bit about how con artists are able to identify marks, right? So in the, in the hypnosis 
environment. They weed out the people who are most vulnerable. In the Nigerian prince scam, I love this, the more outlandish right, your claims are, that's actually a good thing because then you, you wind up getting the most vulnerable people. So from a con artist's perspective, how do you identify the people that are most likely to succumb to your deceptions? Well, the, the Nigerian email scam is, I think, a really good one because it's a relatively modern variant of something that, I mean, e email hasn't been around that long, right? And you know, in order to pull off that sort of a con in the past, it'd be incredibly labor intensive because you couldn't just select for gullibility, right? You couldn't just select the people who are most likely to give you money in the long run. But now you can send out millions of emails and you don't have to catch everybody. In fact, you don't want to catch everybody. If you or I got that email, we know it's a scam, right? They do not want us responding because that will take up their time that they wouldn't then be able to use to reel in money. And it takes time once they get to the actual interaction with somebody. So their goal is to exclude anybody who might be skeptical right? and instead go only for those people who really, really are desperate, right? They want that big reward with little effort, right? And so including typos and weird language and having it just seem outlandish is exactly the goal because they're filtering, right? Whereas something that's a much more labor-intensive con, right? Bereshikli's president scam, where he would pretend to be the head of an organization, call somebody up at the mid-level of the organization who would know who they were but might not know them well, and ask them to do something urgently as a special favor. Well, if you get a call from your organization's president and you're middle management but you're not the very top, right, that's something that you're probably going to try and jump through hoops to do, to appeal to somebody. So figuring out who's the right level of person to target is something they do because they don't want to waste their time. Right? They don't want to call up a VP as the president because they're going to know each other, right? They're not going to want to call up the person working in the mailroom because that person, there'd be no reason for the president of the company to ever call them, right? So more often than not, it's an attempt to select, right? But the selection is often not that deliberate, right? They can just set things up in a way that it's going to work. If you want to sell fake art that's been mass produced, doing it on a cruise ship isn't a bad idea, right? Because people are there, they see some art, it's like, oh, I'm going, I have some money typically, and like, okay, I'll buy this and not think that maybe I shouldn't be buying fine art at a cruise ship. Yeah, now you didn't mention also there are these scams where people will call and pretend to be someone's daughter and say they're kidnapped and that sort of thing, right? This, this is a pretty new variant and, it, and it's really disturbing. So it's, you know, that your kid's been in a car accident or your kid has been arrested and you need this money to get them out right away. And it's appealing to fear, right? And urgency, which are two common hallmarks for this sort of get me money quick sort of scams. This is one of those areas where I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of calling up parents or grandparents who are really concerned about their kid. You can make a lot of those calls and you don't have to hit very often to make a lot of money real quick. The thing that I'm afraid of is that as technology advances, as AI advances, you're going to be able to synthesize somebody's voice. So it makes it that much harder to realize it's a scam. So I think we're heading into a world where novel variants of those are going to be much more dangerous. And we have to, I think, again, it comes down to how do we take preventative steps so we don't have to question when we're under pressure, like when we're in that moment, how do we recognize that this isn't legit, right? And one thing I've talked with my family about is we're going to have a code phrase. Right? So if there's ever any ambiguity about whether this is legit, ask for the code phrase. No harm in doing that. And that will tell us, okay, this is legitimately the person who says it is, and they would know it. Right? If somebody actually were arrested, they would give that code phrase to let people know that it was true. Yeah, that's clever. That's, that, I think that's going to, you should share that insight. But there was a point in the book where you said something about how people have a bias towards yes, and it's hard for them to say no. And you propose that people, instead of thinking in this binary that we think in terms of kind of a continuum, like the probability that something is true. And immediately when you do that, then all of a sudden it forces you to weigh the pros and cons. And this is similar to my colleague, Don Moore, right? He says, always attach a confidence interval to like every point estimate. It's changed my life, right? I mean, I no longer say I'll be there at 8 p.m. I say I'll be there at 8 p.m. plus or minus 15 minutes. But it seems like a, it's a relatively hard thing for people to do, right? It's not something we've done a lot of, right? It, it's very easy to have dichotomous thinking that uh, this is true or this isn't true. This is fake or this is genuine, right? And it, it's an extra step that requires sort of parsing the world more finely. 
than we're used to doing. So just saying how likely is it is really hard. We don't tend to think in terms of 79% as opposed to 100%, 0%, or maybe 50-50, right? It's hard to think about what is a 64% chance of rain today mean, right? That's not an intuitive notion for people who haven't thought about statistics and haven't thought about confidence intervals. But why don't we do that in science? I mean, we kind of do, but I don't think we do it systematically, right? In the sense that, I mean, I remember, this must have been like 25 years ago, and I remember thinking about how overconfidence related to information. Actually, I remember everybody would refer to OSCAMP. OSCAMP said this, OSCAMP did this, 1967, and then everyone would cite it, and everyone would reference it. And then I went and looked at it, and there was like a sample size of 12 people, and yet there must have been a thousand citations to this thing called OSCAMP, and no one had replicated it. And I thought, how does something become conventional wisdom? I mean, shouldn't it have just through repetition? Why wouldn't it be like, okay, here's something that's suggestive, and then it stays suggestive until we have more evidence to support it? Yeah, I mean, I wish we could remain uncertain longer, right? And in the sciences, part of it, I think, is the incentive structure, that people want to be known for a discovery. And discovery is actually really rare, right? I mean, true discovery that didn't, unlike anything that came before it, right, that sort of breakthrough finding, like, we shouldn't be seeing those a lot. And in established fields, we don't. We see refinement. And the discovery, the actual discovery, comes after you've had a lot of work that lays out all of the things that matter, all the parameters, all the variation that matters. And then you have a really good mechanistic understanding of something. But there's this real desire to publish the first paper on something and make a big grand claim. And if you look at the titles of papers, right, they're all, you know, this is true, right? Not this is true under the following conditions with the following constraints. And I tried a little bit to kind of work toward this. My colleague Steve Lindsay and uh, Yuichi wrote a paper on constraints on generality as something that should be in, I think, in all empirical journal articles. It should be a statement of what do we know about how general this is in terms of the people we studied or the materials we used? Do we know that this works outside of the lab? Do we know that this works with people other than college sophomores? Do we know that it works cross-culturally, right? If we don't, then we can say, okay, we don't know. We don't have evidence that this is a general phenomenon. We could say, here's why we think it will be. Here's why we think it won't be. Right? So for my own work on failures of awareness and noticing gorillas and things like that, I now know that works cross-culturally and that it works with a wide range of people and that we've gotten it to work in the lab and we've gotten it to work in big classroom settings and we've gotten it to work with online testing and with in the lab testing. So with the new study, we can say, okay, we have a lot of reasons to think that this will be general, but we haven't tested it with this particular set of materials. So it might not be. Here's why we think it is, but we don't know. And that remaining uncertain lays the groundwork for what should be done to kind of build on a discovery, right? to build it into something that you can say, yes, this is a truth. So if we had, say, truth police in the sciences, I mean, I'm serious. Like my colleague Leif Nelson and Yuri Simonson, I mean, they've appointed themselves as kind of the truth police. And it's just kind of a thankless task, I guess. It is. As uh, Yuri Simonson said at some point, everybody loves that there are whistleblowers, but they don't love the whistleblower, <laughs> right? And paraphrasing. And, and no one's going to get a Nobel Prize for pointing out failures and flaws in other people's research. Yeah, you get hated rather than getting awarded. Right. But it seems like if there were these truth police, some of them could focus on the internal validity and others could focus on the external validity, right? And so the internal validity would just say like, okay, I mean, you could, without even doing a replication, you could just look at the numbers, right? And you know, apply like this grim test or whatever and say, hey, this doesn't hold up. Then you could look at the data, see if the data is legit and so forth. But then a whole separate group of police would probably just police the, um, you know, the implications part of the paper, right? Where people say, therefore, <laughs> they rattle off all these. I mean, it's okay to speculate, but I think, uh, you know, a lot of times people go a little far in, in their speculations, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've seen the papers where people have a very small intervention and they kind of are very careful in the language. And then the general conclusion, it's this applies to everything and explains to the world. Yeah. And it's just. Yeah, it's too much. The problem is that the scope is not a simple thing to solve, right? That there are so many papers being submitted and it's increasing, right? And there aren't that many people each time going through a paper in depth. And I've done this for a few papers where you have to kind of really go through in depth, check all the numbers, make sure. And if you talk to people who do meta-analyses, kind of analyses of a whole bunch of findings from a literature, every one of them who's got experience with that will tell you, 
yep, this paper's wrong. This paper had errors. This paper might be fraud, right? And in a big enough analysis, you're always going to find those. So who does the policing? How do you manage that? The incentive structures to get the field corrected, they're not great. It's really hard to get papers pulled from the literature or even corrected. So unless there's a change to the structure of how publication works, it's hard to kind of get that fixed. There are just not enough Simonsons and Leifs and Nick Browns, and there are just not enough of those folks around to really cover it. I think there are ways to get part of the way there. So some journals have started requiring just checking basic numbers, like do the numbers add up? Do they meet this grim test? Do they do the p-values correspond to the test statistics they report, right, in the statistics? Those are easy and automatable. So psychological science started doing that a few years back, and the number of p-value errors in papers is way down because it's a check just automatically before it goes to production, right? And if they find errors, they say, here's a problem. And if it's a big problem, then they rethink it. If it's a little problem, it's okay, you made an error here. You copied and pasted wrong. But yeah, I mean, I think that the field can improve in this as it requires more analysis code to be available and more data to be available, but it, it's a hard problem. Now, what about the more kind of general public level? Look, I mean, it's great to have someone say, when you walk down the street, make sure you look around your shoulders and walk down. I, mean, I used to live in a neighborhood where I'd have to walk down the middle of the street and you'd be looking around. And I thought, you know, it'd be much nicer just to have safe streets, right? Maybe have some decent police or whatever. And so on the internet, everybody is zapping these clickbait headlines to everybody and they don't, sometimes they don't even read them and these things proliferate. And while we have like the SEC, which kind of does its job on public securities and we have the FTC that kind of protects against certain claims, we don't really have the truth police on the internet. I mean, there've been attempts. I know some folks at Facebook that have tried to monitor this, but at the end of the day, is it just like, hey, there are certain domains like social media that are just like dangerous streets and we prefer there's too much work to kind of wade between the truth and the falsities. Should we just stay out of those neighborhoods? It sure feels like that. I mean, that's the big challenge for any social media company is moderation, right? And that's why people who had run social media companies were doubting that Elon Musk would be able to do it effectively because he didn't seem to realize that you can't just make everything a free-for-all because then you get people planning terrorist actions, right? And you have to moderate, right? There has to be some moderation. And that balance between moderation and censorship is not trivial. So what kind of truth policing do you need for social media? It's really hard if people are just going to forward things that they like. And this this happens all the time. People forward things that fit their own beliefs without checking whether they're right or not, right? And often the more you dig, the more you realize they're just nonsense. But It's really hard to, how do you kind of regulate that? There are places like Snopes and other sites that will say, yes, this is fake, right? But that doesn't stop it from getting out there in the same way that that study that's completely implausible that had 12 participants and has never been replicated gets cited thousands of times because nobody actually goes back and says, no, this isn't what we should be saying about it, right? The corrections don't get cited. The original claims do. So yeah, I I don't know if there's an easy fix for that as an automated system other than just getting people to say, is it possible that this is wrong? How would I verify that this is right? Just taking that one question and then you get that confidence interval that you were mentioning around it. Maybe this isn't true. Well, look, we didn't even dig into all the habits and the hooks, but I think the general project that you're involved in, I mean, it it seems a bit paradoxical because on the one hand, you emphasize the finiteness of our attentional resources. (laughs) But on the other, you know, you really are trying to help people become better decision makers, become more aware of the possibilities and limitations of their intuition. So, I mean, are you an optimist or a realist when it comes to helping people engage the world in a more thoughtful and useful way? I guess I'd say I'm an optimist in the sense that I think it's possible to better understand how we think, understand ourselves in a way that can help us prevent kind of the worst cases of deception. So I'm an optimist in the sense that, yeah, I think we really can head off disaster if we're aware of what we find appealing, which things are those red capes that we just charge forward into without thinking about them. If you can kind of anticipate, hey, this is one of those situations, and the more you kind of think about it, the more you recognize them. We spot these all the time now, where you're just running into something blind, not realizing what might be hiding. If you kind of start to look for those that can really head off a lot of disasters. So I'm an optimist in the sense that I think it's possible. I'm a realist in the sense that not everybody's going to do it. 
right? So the scammers are going to continue to succeed because they'll find somebody else. So on a global scale, I'm not optimistic about scams being eliminated because they've been around forever. But I'm optimistic that individuals can get around this problem, or at least most of the time when it matters the most, as opposed to worrying about it when it doesn't matter. And do you do periodic gullibility audits of your own trust behavior? And you do it, is it domain specific, right? So you say, okay, when it comes to my finances, I have this level of trust. When I'm reading about vaccines and so forth, I have this level of trust. I mean, how frequently do you need to kind of go in and rebalance your trust portfolio? Is this something that's a continuous time thing? Or is this sort of once a year, I'm going to go back and audit my gullibility? I think of it as a little bit like balancing. If you have a, a set of investments, you've got some mutual funds, you've got some bonds. You don't want to be rebalancing every three days because that's not smart and it's not cost effective. You want to kind of take a look every now and then, once a year, and just make sure that you've kind of got your balance right. For me, I find that it's more on a specific case-by-case -case basis. So I generally, if somebody shares something on social media, I now know if it really appeals to me, I should say, okay, what's the evidence for that? And and they remain uncertain for a little bit longer, right? And it's hard to do that when you see something that perfectly matches what you want to believe. So I, I tend not to immediately reshare things on Twitter or on Facebook based on a headline or a blurb. And I'll, I'll look at it and say, okay, could this be faked to kind of propagate? And more often than not, it's like, yeah, it could be. So I'm just going to hold off on sharing that. And just that alone, just that asking that question can make a big difference for not spreading misinformation, right? Well, Dan, thank you so much. New book is called Nobody's Fool. Definitely check it out. Also, Visible Gorilla. I mean, it's still amazing. I was rereading it and I was like, oh, now I remember why I love this book. And of course, the experiments that are up on your website. And I recommend that anybody who has not yet checked out those experiments should definitely check them out and kind of try them out on their friends, family, coworkers, and so forth. So thanks so much, Dan. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.